Coming up in this podcast, nickel restarts, livable cities, house prices, Subiaco, universities, and our special report on the retail sector. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Dan Wilkie. Dan, first up, we have seen two nickel mines commit to restarts. What are the details? Yeah, so uh, there's a continuum of momentum in the uh, nickel space. Um, Ravensthorpe, which has been around for a while, that's officially restarted. They've gone on a big recruitment drive, First Quantum Minerals, that is, the Canadian owner of the mine. They're looking for 550 jobs across uh, in-house and across its contractors. And this week, Poseidon Nickel also announced a restart of its Black Swan Nickel Mine. They're, they've committed to spend around $56.7 million on the restart. So... These moves are in response to improved dynamics in the market. Uh, nickel prices were trading around US 10,000 a tonne at the start of the year, and this week it's risen to around US 18,000 a tonne. Last time it was this high, it was back in late 2014, and uh, miners are really seeing some upside in the space because global stockpiles also at low levels. Yeah. Um, and so, what else is driving it, do you think? So it's um, obviously a key ingredient in the battery space, um, in, in manufacturing of electric vehicle batteries and lithium-ion batteries. So while there's a lot of uncertainty around lithium following the collapse of uh, lithium-miner Alita, there's still some, I guess, momentum picking up in those other ingredients. Um, this week also the state government announced that it was going to help facilitate Kaibaran resources, uh, obtain approvals for a proposed graphite processing facility, that's another yep. key ingredient, and um, Kidman Resources shareholders this week um, approved West Farmers takeover bid. Um, so while Alita's... So that's, yeah, that's over in the lithium space, right? That's in the yeah, lithium so space, yeah. So, so so while there's a bit of concern about Alita and whether, the, and you know, Pilbara Minerals has, has had its challenges as well. Um, so lithium, a little bit of uncertainty, but the other ingredients, there still seems to be some yeah. significant movement and some upside. Yeah, and obviously nickel's, you know, used in many things and, and clearly, the, you know, it's all just a supply and demand question. Mm-hmm. I think there's also Indonesia's uh, cut off some of its exports, wanting it wanting its nickel to be processed onshore, which has uh, caused a little bit of turmoil there and pushed the price up as well. I guess the one thing about this is, you know, they, it, there seems to be with nickel mines of the last while that if the price falls, they shut them down, and mm. First Quantum have been pretty uh, ruthless on that one previously. So I, I guess we've got to we have to a presume that the miners think that this is a long term, the price is going to hold up. Or B, we have to be wary that we don't see a sort of stop and start kind of process. Mm, yeah, it seems to be always the way, you know, it gets to a certain level and everyone presses go, go, go. Of course. And then the supply comes Funny up. Funny that. Funny yeah. that. And then it supply, all comes tumbling supply down Supply goes again. up and the prices go down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, Dan, Perth is often rated as one of the world's most livable cities. What are the latest findings? So, yeah, the um, Economics Intelligence Unit, Economists Intelligence Unit, sorry, um, they released their annual survey of livable cities. Now, the good news, uh, Perth rated in the top 15 places to live in the world, coming at number 14. The bad, just three years ago, Perth was rated number seven. Yeah. So the uh, report this... This week said that Perth didn't really rate highly on cultural and environment. Now, I would actually argue that environment would do pretty well in, but I can kind of agree with the cultural piece. Yeah. Um, I don't know why those two categories are lumped together for a a collective score. Um, But other details from the survey, as expected, Melbourne and Sydney ranked higher. But I was a bit surprised that Adelaide was ranked higher than Perth. They came in at 10th in the world, Um, but at least were higher than Brisbane. 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> now, Mark, um, you wrote a column this week um, that sort of links into this topic. Um, you had some ideas on how to enliven William Street and make that area a little bit more livable and a little bit more vibrant. Yeah, well, I suppose um, I'm not really suggesting that we that William Street will make fixing up William Street to uh, to uh, connect the north and the south of the CBD better is necessarily making it more livable. But I think you're right, it's, it's part of that livable city concept. Um, look, I, you know, I don't like to harp on about my holidays, but I do get the opportunity to do so every now and then. Uh, I just noticed it in Barcelona, um, where a lot of the streets there, they have literally kept the, or kept, or it was designed this way, I haven't really looked into the, the architecture and history of it, but um, although Barcelona was sort of designed, a lot of it was designed as a gridded city, uh, you know, in the, in the 1800s. Um, the, they have single lanes um, on, the, on each side of a street and then a, and then a pedestrian, large pedestrian area running down the middle where often they also have uh, sort of their semi-permanent hospitality um, structures there so that, you know, when it's tourist season, they t- the, the restaurant that's on the side of the street also has a, a venue in the middle of the street. Now, I just thought that this was a great outcome. It, it didn't completely shut down the traffic which is what malls that we have, uh, such as the Hay Street Mall and Murray Street Mall, all that do. Um, malls are great, but I think you know locking off William Street as a mall would be pretty devastating. I think to, it would really be difficult to then get traffic to move around the city. Whereas if you just slim it down, most of the traffic going up and up and down William Street is single lane anyway. So not quite sure how you do it. Not sure how much room there is, but I would like to see. I think Elizabeth Key is really isolated. It's a great asset to the city, and it's the foreshore and the convention centre. And I think if you're visiting visit Elizabeth Key, you're visiting the convention centre, the natural conduit to the north and Northbridge, the entertainment sector, is William Street. And at the other end of that part of it, at the Northbridge end, Yagan Square, another great asset. So why not join those two things up? Uh, make it more pedestrian friendly and I will say you know Yogan Square opened not that long ago during the summer I I at one stage did walk from Yogan Square down to Elizabeth Quay you know 11 o'clock at night it's a bit of a wasteland it's a bit you know Mm -hmm. empty uh, it's full of, you know, kind of fast forward. Probably looking behind yourself and, to make sure. Yeah, well, that, you know, just, just a little, which I think you shouldn't have to. It's not, it wasn't really like that. But if I was a foreigner or, you know, from out of state or out of the city, I might be questioning where I'm going rather than giving a real direction. So there you go. Mm. And look, I might add to that, Dan, on this livable city subject whilst we're on it, which is a favourite one of mine. There is some other talk going on about density and the like, which we've talked about a lot in here. And putting density along, you know, key urban uh, transit area, you know, like railway lines and such. And I, and I agree with all that. I reckon the more we can cover our railway lines and put housing on top or turn our streets, our large, you know, major roads, get get more density around them and make them more trans, transport friendly and public transport friendly, make public transport more cost effective for everyone to use, fantastic. I mean, mm. this, where we're, where we're recording this, We've got a tunnel running running underneath us now. Not cheap to do, but if you bury railway lines and roads uh, and sell the land above, it is pretty cost effective, I think. Mm. And I, I think you know, doing something in Live and William Street along the lines uh, that you've suggested, you know, that can only be good coming into the summer months. You know, you know, yeah. West Aussies love to get outside, enjoy a glass of beer, 
uh, enjoy the weather and the sunshine. So yeah. you know, have a meal. It'd be, it'd be perfect to enliven and you know provide that vibrancy that is talked about a lot. And it's north south too, so you're not you know getting that canyon, the the, the, the wind blasting down. I hope. I hope. Um, and just the last thing on the livable cities, Dan. Um, you know, I wonder. We used to be more livable, and yet I think the cultural side of the cities improved markedly. Um, so I'm a little surprised. I um, mean, I think the small bar laws that came in, you know, more than ten years ago, that have really uh, livened the city up. I think the Fringe Festival, you know, I mean, it's not there all year, but I think there's more going on. So. I'm curious as to why we would go backwards in that area. I was a bit perplexed by that as well. So maybe it's a case of these other cities lifting their rating a little bit higher than we have. Mm. Uh, they've, maybe they've improved more than what Perth has in the past few years. It's uh, Yeah, I was definitely questioning that uh, measure myself. Hard to know. Okay. Now, uh, speaking, sticking with Perth, Dan, another bad week for house prices. Yeah, uh, CoreLogic put out their monthly... Um, House price index, as they do on the first uh, Monday of every month, and again another fall down 0.5% over the month of August, and that's contributed to an 8.8% fall over the last 12 months. Now, usually when we talk about these things, I always say it is a function of what's transacting. Um, yep. There's a lot of opportunity for first home buyers in the lower end of the market. Clearly, that drives the median price down because the median price is around four twenty four thirty thousand. First home buyers are buying, you know, anywhere from two fifty to three fifty generally. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, values in the inner suburbs around Perth over the last twelve months have fallen by nine point seven percent. So sellers are being forced to meet the market. There's a lot of discounts going on, or discounting, or revising their asking price. And there'd be a lot of pain out there for those that have bought in the last five years, in particular. Um, I don't think not many would be getting close to achieving the, the asking price or getting what they paid for their properties. Yeah, which makes that whole, I want to sell my house to buy the next house to upgrade, mm. really difficult, doesn't it? It does. So, so that, that's the issue. You know, The higher value, people are looking at the stats like this and going, well, I'm going to have to sit on this for another 6 to 12 months before there's an improvement mm. because they don't want to take a haircut. And you know, people looking to downsize, they may not be as urgently looking to buy as someone as, as a first home buyer. Yeah who will make the decision quickly. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, and I guess I guess the, the, the probably truer function of house prices, and I guess it's difficult to uh, to, to determine it, um, is you really want to see how, what, for each transaction, what was the previous mm. price, right, rather than the median. Um, mm. But of course then you're including new homes in that and, and well, we never know because there wasn't a previous buyer except land. Yeah. So, yeah. We I mean, Core Logic does put out, I think it's a quarterly pain and gain report. Uh, yeah. The last one wasn't pretty for Perth. No. Um, I think uh, just off the top of the head, uh, off the top of my head, it was something like in the city of Perth, the average uh, difference between the previous selling price and the selling price that people were achieving was around 100 grand. So it was significantly... Yeah, that would hurt. Yeah. So we're, we're, what are we suggesting? We've gone back to sort of 2005, 2006 prices or not quite? Correct. Like it is, you know, I think, yeah, maybe even, yeah, 2006, 2007 prices has yeah. gone back sort of at least a decade. Um, yeah. So that old adage, adage that house prices double every seven years, clearly not in play in Perth at the moment. No, no, and... Uh, and maybe not for some time. Uh, very disappointing, you know. I guess some of us in here have thought that we bottomed out two years ago, and clearly not the case. Um, now, last week, uh, and this is again a property story. Mm. Uh, last week we mentioned the state's plans for Subiaco East. Uh, 
Now, Dan, you've got a lot more detail on what's happening in that part of the world. Yeah, um, there was an Urban Development Institute of Australia event um, a couple of weeks ago, and they had uh, Paul Blackburn, John Kerry, and Subiaco Mayor Penny Taylor speaking. And Paul Blackburn actually said, and I thought this was very interesting, that the departure of football has been one of the best things to happen to Subiaco in many years. Now, obviously, he's very invested in the suburb. He's got a very high-profile project. And he doesn't own a retail outlet there, (laughs) But he does have a big retail component of that project. Coming, but not right But he's going to have a lot of residents sitting above it yeah. if all goes to plan. Um, so he, he says that the opportunity to revitalise Subiaco wouldn't have come unless the Oval, unless football moved to Optus Stadium. Right. Um, so he's busy finalising the details of his Subiaco project, which is, now has a name. It's called One Subiaco. Um, and it's actually one of the biggest residential projects in Perth's history at an end value of around $270 million. So mm. big project. Um, but he's actually... It's interesting... He did actually increase the height of the project from the previous DA that was in, in place, but he's reduced the number of t- apartments. So he's bigger apartments, targeting a, a more luxury s- sort of buyer. Yeah, right, okay. Um, so it'll be interesting how to see how that goes. How many apartments are in it, do you It's uh, 240-ish. Yeah, right. So okay. the, the previous one was, I think, uh, about 270. So mm-hmm. um, he's actually reduced the, the footprint, and the 24-storey building is only taking up 20% of the site. Um, the rest of it is around six to eight storeys, and it's the whole ground floor com- component is going to be in hospitality precinct, and he's going to bring back the markets. So he's hoping that that's going to be the catalyst, um, and it, it complements what the state government's doing with Subi East. Um, you, uh, listeners would have heard last week that the, the government's approved more than $200 million of investment, mm. and Subi East um, is a considerable urban redevelopment area along Roberts Road, uh, stretching from, I guess, Subiaco Oval up to Princess Margaret Hospital. And um, that area is really changing. If you drive down there now, you have a look at Subiaco Oval coming down, and it's really opening up the area. It looks completely different to what it has for, I guess... Yeah, it was always very overshadowed Mm. by that stadium, wasn't it? You know, which which came right up against the road there, didn't it? Mm. I had a meeting in Subiaco last week and just walking past the old Pavilion Market site and not having that there was just like, wow, this place is looking different. And, you know, there is a lot of change coming, um, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and the city of Subiaco um, really should be applauded. Um, they facilitate, facilitated this change by putting in place a new planning scheme, which is yet to be approved by the minister, but they're making all the right noises that it's going to be approved. Um, and they've been very careful to protect the heritage and character areas while prescribing for density to be in areas along Roberts Road and close to the train station. So trying to keep everyone happy because I know that there's always a lot of consternation from people who live in these old areas with a lot of character about them that they don't want apartments next door. Subiaco's been very cognizant of that and they've restricted the higher density to key areas. So, yeah, uh, still plenty of angst to come there, I think. Too. Oh, of course. It's, it's always the way in these suburbs. People are very set in their ways and a lot of people are resistant to change. Um, <laughs> but hopefully for Subiaco, um, a bit more density will be the tonic to its retail woes because there's still a lot of empty shops and former bars and restaurants and cafes along Rockleby Road. Sure is. Uh, now, Dan, uh, vice-chancellors from several WA universities spoke at a recent, I think it was a CEDA event. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did they have to say? So, yeah, Jordan Murray has um, covered this one for us. And um, he said the real standout was um, some comments from ECU vice-chancellor Stephen Chapman. So he's actually questioned the role of universities in preparing students for jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, he believes the value of universities is in teaching ad- academic skills rather than vocational skills and other institutions that's their role to prepare students for work um, and unis are there to teach students how to think rather than perform jobs 
Now, I, this is an opinion of mine. I thought this was an interesting take because, you know, students pay tens of thousands of dollars for a degree. There should be some sort of expectation that you're going to be able to perform the role that that d- degree, I guess, gives you the leg up to get into. Well, Dan, I'll, I'll you know, I guess there's, there are two schools of thoughts on thought on this and there have been plenty of, you know, like there's been plenty of uh, diversion or diversity in the sector between those that universities that provide that sort of academic teacher-to-think view versus the vocational, um, you know, it's more job-ready, right? And I think there's probably room for both. Um, I'd say that, but the traditional university, the the original university was very much around what Steve Chapman's talking about. Okay, that people were sent off to go and learn and mature and think and kind of work out how the world works by being taught that by people, you know. And then they would apply that to whatever they then went into. Now, of course, we had a number of stream, you know, like the world got more sophisticated, you know. Being able to think doesn't make you a great doctor. It's part of it, of course, Mm. but, you know, medicine, law, engineering all evolved as university studies where... I guess we expect a lot of those professions and the university was a place where they came out with some qualification that we felt gave us confidence in them rather than them going in there to get themselves a ticket, I think. Um, so I think Steve's got a lot of a lot of good point or there's a lot of reason in what he's saying. I think the problem is that even if you go back 30 or 40 years, you know, maybe 15% of the population was educated at university. So sure, go send your top echelon, get them thinking, because they're the people who are going to help us drive the next. And they're not, it's not exclusive to university, right? There's, and you can go and do this with books and um, MOOCs or whatever those online courses, you can, you can educate yourself. I think the problem is today, a much bigger part of the population or school leaver population is going into university basically extending school life Mm. and those people aren't there to think per se they're there like you say to go and get a a vocational effort so Mm. yeah that was certainly my experience i graduated high school in 97 and all through it was you know prior to the years for that is you need to study te subjects that's what it was called back then (laughs) um and set yourself up for the future by going to university you yeah. know, it was it was definitely seen that vocational training was a secondary choice. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's correct because you know, vocational training people can build very successful careers and very successful businesses through going down that path. Yeah, um, so that probably needs to be a bit of, bit of balance there, and students need to, I guess, identify what their skills are at the earliest possible point and start thinking about that a lot earlier. But when you went to university, did you go thinking you were going to get a career out of it, or did you go because you wanted to learn and think and then decide what you're going to do next? Well, considering I had two false starts of degrees, it was more of the second, I think. Right. Okay. <laughs> I actually went back to, uh, to university as a mature age a few years later and went into what I wanted to do in the first place but got talked out of it because I was told that journalism was too competitive and I wasn't likely to get a job. Yeah, right. So it was an interesting dynamic, but yeah, yeah, we'll just move along. They didn't mention there was no future in it, did they? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Well, I'd like to think there still is. Um, now, Dan, uh, you've done our special report this week on the retail sector. Uh, is there any good news there? Um, there, there was interesting. Um, got some good insights. Um, there was a little bit of good news, so um, we'll, we'll jump to that first, I suppose. Um, 
And so I had a chat with a few um, shopping centre owners and a few shopping centre developers, um, one of them being Serona Capital, who is doing the uh, King Square redevelopment in Fremantle. They're really putting together a new concept of retail. They really, it's not going to be a shopping centre. They, I think every time that Matthew McNeely has come out in the media, he's been very careful to stress that. He wants local artisans, local craftspeople, really bespoke experiential type things. Big focus on food and Bev because that's what's growing. Um, discretional spending isn't so much. Um, and so they're really tapping into Frio's identity with, with that build and they're set to open, I think, mid, midway through next year. Um, and local shopping centre owner Hawaiian, they've got some really interesting things. Also in Fremantle, they own the Mantle and Sunshine Harvester Works, mm. which are basically their incubation uh, premises for hospitality businesses. Um, so it's basically giving people like food truck operators or startup businesses a really flexible lease option where they don't have to sign in for long, for, for long term because in the Retail Tenancies Act, you actually the minimum is a five-year term. And a lot of startups, especially in this uncertain environment where bars will pop up, two years later they'll be gone. Yeah. You clearly don't want to sign on for five years. So they're offering flexible lease models and giving them a chance to experience what it's like to have a fixed tenancy and see if their business can work. Um, if it doesn't, they'll move on, get someone else in. If it does, like Short Order Burger Co. that's in the mantle, they've actually expanded to a, include a Hay Street store, which if you, it's near the Apple store. If you go past there at lunchtime any day, just teeming with people. Mm-hmm. And great burgers, by the way. <laughs> um, now, the big guys uh, had a chat with our vicinity centres uh, and Lend Lease, and both of them are tapping into a multi-channel approach, trying to get people through the doors. Yep. Um, so instead of, uh, I guess, trying to compete directly with online shopping, they're trying to head it off at the pass. So they're using Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to really engage, show what the experiential offering is, give people a reason to get in through the door, and then they'll actually spend. Um, and research is actually showing that consumers prefer to shop in person. Um, the vicinity centre sent through some stats. They said that 95% of retail sales in Australia were done with a shop with a physical premise, and only 5% were pure play online retailers. Yeah, right. So that, that's interesting. And, you know, the research is showing that people do prefer to have that experience when they're going into the shops. Um, the other part of the feature was I had a chat with um, some of the leading leasing agents to find out why there are so many for lease signs on, on all these shops. Now, uh, Jim Segalis, he was strongly of the view that landlords and rents are not to blame for the spate of collapses. That's been a lot of the commentary, especially when you when these people who have had a business go under, they say, oh, the rent's too high. Now, Jim said when he's looking at these um, profit and loss statements, rent is never the top expense. It's usually wages, cost of goods, then rent will come down somewhere below that. And he says that landlords generally, as a rule, are willing to meet the market. They understand that the situation has changed, that the retail conditions are more depressed, and they're willing to cut rents. They're willing to pay for fit-outs and keep these tenants on and help with the vibrancy. So it's an interesting balance there. Um, the problems, they say, stem from a convergence of factors. Um, and Jim and Anne Manifest from JLL both had this view. Um, there's been the economic downturn in WA, which is starting to turn around now. So hopefully in the next couple of years, that's not going to be an issue with, with things like nickel picking up, and more jobs, and the mining sector really doing the heavy lifting again. Yeah. But the other problem is there's been an oversupply of new shops. Um, much has been said, you know, $2.5 billion 
of a $5 billion planned shopping centre investment has been underway in WA. And just in the last two years, more than 300 new shops have been added at various um, shopping malls across the city. And these um, national owners, either ASX-listed entities or superannuation funds, have been super aggressive in making sure they're leased. So they'll go to a national group and they'll say, we'll help you out over in one side of the country if you go into Perth. Or they'll... Jim said, he says they're not giving them away for free, but they're very competitive competitive deals. So it makes it hard um, when you've got sort of these high streets that don't have this, I guess, collective group of owners, and that's very hard to attract tenants because, you know, if, if you're looking to... If you're a retailer looking to move, you get the support of having a shopping mall, lots of people coming past, or you're going to go out alone on a high street and not as competitive a leasing deal, what would you go for? It's, um, it's yeah. a interesting. Curious um, also that, you know, Jim's saying, oh, it's not rent, and mm. yet here's this wave of additional retailers coming in mm. and they're being attracted in many ways by mm. low rent. Uh, he did say that, because he is a landlord himself, he does own um, several uh, Beaufort Street tenancies. Um, he's dropped the rent on several of those in recent times. He knows of other landlords that have done the same. So, yeah. um, Not sure what they can do about the cost of wages or the cost of goods. Uh, I guess that's just, you know... You can't. It's, yeah. You can't do anything about, you know, punters going into a shop, checking something out, and then going buying it online either. Mm. No, that is, that is a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Um, well, unless uh, you own the... Mm. So unless you're the retailer... Who owns the product, like mm. Apple, where you don't you, you, you can be then it's a display, it's a touch and feel, mm. and you can be a little bit ambivalent as to whether people buy it from the shop mm. or online. Well, that, that's that's what Anne Manifest actually said that you know you, you can't open a shop and think that that shop is going to be sustainable as a business. You need an online presence as well. Yeah, of course. So you need to give that person the option to shop online, either to pick it up or the store, or, or they'll mail it out. Or, you know, if you're just a pure online retailer, it's tough. If you're just a pure bricks and mortar, it's tough. Yep. You need a convergence of the two. So yeah. Just like the media, right? And unfortunately, <laughs> that comes with twice the cost. Anyway, mm. or not twice, but a large extra cost. Yeah, no, good one. All right. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Uh, Business News is proud to launch a new breakfast series to showcase the incredible and inspiring stories of Western Australia's leading women in business. Our Food for Thought breakfast series will be a celebration of the myriad achievements by WA's extraordinary businesswoman. Uh, an informal chat-style breakfast, our speakers will join Network 10 journalist Narelda Jacobs to discuss their success, their journey, and the difficulties faced in a cross-section of businesses. Uh, the breakfast event is on Wednesday, September 25th at the Hyatt. Go to the events section of our website to buy your tickets. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.